what spine-chilling, toe-tingling tales do tiny, terrible ghouls and goblins tell around a cursed midnight campfire? Eerie, enigmatic, and outright hair-raising tales of people. Ooh, spooky. Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tagg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that rare and associated communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. This is the time of year that heralds in cozy sweaters, hot beverages, and trick-or-treating. It's a time of warm colors, cool nights, and cuddling up with a spooky story a la Tim Burton or Stephen King. You might be able to tell that for me, October isn't just about pumpkin spice and everything nice. It's about relaxing with a good spooky movie. You won't be surprised to hear that in this episode, I pick up where I left off last year exploring rare diseases and media, but I'm also sharing three fictional mostly fictional rare diseases with roots in myth and in science. But before I continue, there is no rare and relevant TLDR in today's episode. We've got all the awareness days on the Dazzle for Rare calendar, and the events calendar has upcoming events for October and November. If you're missing out, go to dazzleforrare.net to calendars and read up on how you can add your dates to the free calendars. Now sit back and relax. Last year, we explored some inspirational actors like Gaten Matarazzo and Cleocranial Hyperplasia and Javier Botet in Marfan Syndrome, these actors alongside the characters that they've played in movies and television. Conditions like Marfan Syndrome have featured heavily in film and television. In this segment, we're going to talk about a few more actors, some more famous than others, who are affected either by a rare condition or a rarely understood condition and some of the awe-inspiring spooky stuff that they've brought us. Actors have a unique gift of being able to transport viewers to another place and time, if they're good at their craft. They're able to create characters who tell a complex story through carefully crafted emotions, facial expressions, and changes in their tone of voice. American actor Bruce Willis has done this for over 40 years, since his first uncredited film role in 1980. While he's known primarily for his action films like the Die Hard series, he's pulled off one of the most iconic plot twists in movie history in the film The Sixth Sense, with his portrayal of child psychologist Dr. Malcolm Crowe. Loki, I did not sleep for weeks after seeing this movie. I am a bit of a wimp. He's also known for his epic and iconic character, and also known as a meat popsicle, the rebellious taxi driver Corbin Dallas in the film The Fifth Element, which is a fabulous sci-fi movie. We've mentioned in previous episodes that the Willis-Moore family have shared Bruce's diagnosis of a symptom called aphasia. We've talked about that in previous episodes. After that, reports that his behavior had slowly been changing on set came out, and finally, more recently, the public was told by Emma Willis, Bruce Willis's wife, that Bruce is affected by a rare form of dementia called frontotemporal lobe dementia. Data on this rare form of dementia is hard to come by, which makes perfect sense because, again, whether a condition is rare or just rarely understood, data is often hard to come by, but this condition is listed as affecting 
one or less than one in 20 dementia patients in the United States and about 15 in 200,000 patients in the UK. While this type of dementia isn't a 1 in 200,000 K kind of rare, it is less common as a form of dementia, and it's less commonly diagnosed than other forms. So a patient may go on for several years, if not decades, without a diagnosis of frontal temporal dementia. On a recent Today Show interview with Emma Willis, Bruce Willis's wife, it was shared that the average time to diagnosis can exceed 20 years. So why is FTD so hard to diagnose? The symptoms of this condition are pretty vague and can easily be attributed to other conditions, which is kind of similar to multiple sclerosis in a lot of ways. The symptoms of this condition are pretty vague and can easily be attributed to other conditions, similar to multiple sclerosis. The symptoms, according to Johns Hopkins Medicine, include socially inappropriate, impulsive, or repetitive behavior, impaired judgment, lack of apathy or lack of empathy, decreased self-awareness, loss of interest in normal daily activities and or emotional withdrawal, loss of energy and motivation, inability to use or understand language. Uh, An example is difficulty naming objects, losing words for common items, using the wrong word to describe an object like window is mirror and vice versa. This is the aphasia part of FTD. Hesitation when speaking or less frequent speech, becoming easily distracted, trouble planning and organizing, frequent mood changes or agitation, and an increasing dependence on others. While this health revelation is heartbreaking for Bruce and the Willis Moore family, it's also very sad to folks who have been a fan of Bruce's work for decades. We can be grateful that he's given us four decades of action, suspense, humor, and running the gamut of genres across television, movies, and music. Yep, Bruce has made music too. Currently, there is no cure for FTD. The sad silver lining to this story is that because of Bruce's family, brought this to light and has given some understanding to aphasias because there are more than one type of aphasia, now the public has some understanding of this and of FTD. More people are coming forward with their diagnoses and their experiences. And at the end of the day, that's what every undiagnosed rare and complex community wants is for more people to learn about and have empathy for their condition. So a little bit of travel advice. If you're thinking about going on a winter holiday and you're considering the Overlook Hotel, keep in mind that it can be quite a maze. You can ask the last groundskeeper, Jack Torrance. Jack once got so turned around in the hotel that he shouted to his wife, Wendy, I must ask you a question. Some people. All right, I have six more actors in horror or sci-fi films who have a rare condition or who have experienced a rare condition. And spoiler alert, you'll recognize these conditions. The first one is Michael Berryman, hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. This condition results in a lack of sweat glands, hair, fingernails, and sometimes teeth, if I understand correctly. Michael has been in at least 30 films, including several horror films, such as The Hills Have Eyes and The Devil's Rejects, as well as other horror films. He is extremely recognizable, so I would say with a Google search, you will most certainly recognize him. He's a very tall gentleman uh, who is bald and has no eyebrows or eyelashes. He's very recognizable. He once said about his childhood uh, and his experience with bullying, 
I was pretty well grounded. I was being teased and whatever, and I didn't have anger skills. So I would go to the parents and say, your children are brats and tell them that they're bad parents. Um, That's an interesting way of, of handling things. The second actor on our list is Ted Cassidy, uh, and he had the condition known as acromegaly, which we talked about uh, last year. In last year's episode, we shared the sad story of fellow acromegaly patient in person, Rondo Halton, who appeared in early horror films because of this condition. So Ted Cassidy also had this condition, and he's well-known and well-loved for having been the actor who played Lurch on The Addams Family. What you may not know is he enjoyed a short but busy career. He played sports through high school and into university, was a radio broadcaster, and he was a prolific voice actor. He even played a very hunky Tarzan in 1969. Unfortunately, Ted passed away at the very young age of 46. Before his untimely passing, he did a lot of voice work for cartoons in the 70s and made guest appearances on television and voiced many cartoon characters, some that are quite recognizable. There's also a really interesting documentary about him on YouTube, and if I can find the link, I'll drop that in the show notes. Next, we have Richard Keel. Richard Keel is known for the Bond film Moonraker, where he played Jaws, and for the horror film The Phantom Planet. Richard also lived with the rare hormonal condition acromegaly. Because of his acromegaly, he rose to a height of over seven feet tall, topping even Ted Cassidy a.k.a. Lurch. He enjoyed a career that spanned movies, television, producing, writing, and video games from the 1960s until his passing in 2014. He voiced Jaws in 10, count them, 10 James Bond video games. Richard was a true testament to perseverance in Hollywood, as shown by his decade-spanning career, and also persevering in life, leaving an extensive body of work for folks to enjoy today. Next, we have the iconic Andre the Giant. Is it any surprise that I would be mentioning Andre the Giant? Is it any surprise that beloved wrestler and actor Andre also lived with acromegaly? Andre René Roussimoff, or Andre the Giant, was a French wrestler and actor. He featured in the classic 80s fantasy comedy, The Princess Bride. For many people my age, Andre remains well-loved for his wrestling persona, Andre the Giant, and his on-and-off-again bromance with fellow wrestler Hulk Hogan, who famously body-slammed Andre twice during his wrestling career. Andre was an extremely large man, so this is no small feat, no pun intended. Despite the real-life rivalry that spilled into the wrestling storylines of the 80s and early 90s, the two men actually became friends. It seemed that years of being body slammed uh, and other wrestling moves took a toll on Andre as he suffered with debilitating chronic pain for the rest of his life until his untimely passing at the age of 46 in 1990 at his home in Paris, France. Again, I'm sure many folks my age will hear his name and think back on many a Saturday night main event or a Sunday WWF recap with the hilarious smack talking segments between Hulk and Andre. Uh, So Andre is still missed. Paul Wright, another wrestler. (laughs) And uh, also, can you tell I was a fan of wrestling? Paul Wright was known as The Big Show. So what would this episode be without mentioning him and also his acting career. As I said, I was a fan of wrestling from the 80s to the early 2000s, and Paul White was active from 1994, and I believe is still active today in wrestling. He's mostly been known to wrestling fans as The Big Show, 
And of course, he also has acromegaly. The condition has taken Paul to a height of seven feet tall. If you're not familiar with his wrestling work, you've probably seen him on television. While researching his filmography for this, I was surprised to see that he's only been in one horror film that I could find. (laughs) That's great. I'm extremely glad to find that. Many actors, unfortunately, with acromegaly have been cast as monsters and villains, as Rondo Halton was, if you go back to our, our last year's episode. And that's an unfortunate circumstance. But it's really great to see that actually Paul's roles have mainly been in wrestling work or in family films and comedies uh, with some voice work. So that's actually really great to see. And I'm actually glad to hear (laughs) that he's not been in many horror films. We need more of that. The last entry on our list is the only female on our list, and that is Joey King. And the condition that she acquired was immune thrombocytopenia, which actually had an awareness day. I believe it was last month. Our final entry, as I said, is a woman named Joey King for her role in the horror film The Conjuring. During filming, Joey encountered a real life scare with ITP or, as I just said, immune thrombocytopenia. On set, she experienced unusual bruising and large bruises that seemed to come from nowhere. It was discovered that while filming, the then 13-year-old actress had developed ITP, which is a rare blood disorder that causes the immune system to destroy blood clotting cells. Though the condition is considered rare, it can happen to people who have experienced long-term illness or several concurrent infections or a lot of infections in a short period of time, and this can temporarily weaken the immune system, leading to this malfunction. Luckily for young Joey, the condition did resolve. In most cases, ITP does resolve with appropriate treatment. She experienced something that 1 in 10 Americans will experience in their lifetime, and that is a brush with a rare condition. While the majority of rare conditions are genetic in nature and strike children under the age of 5, there are still hundreds of other acquired rare conditions that affect otherwise healthy individuals during their lives. Many of these are brought on by viral infections that can wreak havoc on the immune system and lead to an exaggerated immune response, as it did with ITP. So do you know of any celebrities with a rare condition who have also crossed to the dark side of films or television? If you do, share them on social media and tag us because we'd love to hear more about folks in the public eye who are also living La Vida Rare. Right. I have another joke for you. If you're a fan of the Evil Dead franchise, then Hopefully you'll find this funny. I don't know. You tell me. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Ash Williams from Evil Dead. I can really relate to his taste in music. I mean, the guy is not into iTunes or digital downloads. He's all about the vinyl records. Any idea why? Because they're groovy. Hail to the king, baby. The next two ladies that I'm going to mention are not part of horror and sci-fi, but they are two women in the global rare disease community who are also in the spotlight. And I'll just touch on them really quickly because I think it's important to also include women as much as possible because we do make up quite a lot of the population of folks with rare conditions. So as we often say in rare disease, rare is not rare. And so, of course, there are going to be lots of people who are affected in the public eye. And one of those people is the very famous Céline Dion. She, of course, as everyone knows, is a French-Canadian singer. Um, She's sang some of the most impactful love songs, I think, in pop history in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, But she was diagnosed with a condition called stiff person syndrome last year, I believe it was. 
In episode 15, we spoke to Lauren McDermott, who is also a female patient with stiff person syndrome. We talked about Lauren's diagnostic experience and symptoms and a little bit about uh, Celine Dion. And uh, we've also talked about Celine Dion's diagnosis in previous episodes. So we'll drop a link in the show notes to the episode about stiff person syndrome. The other person that I wanted to talk about is a writer and producer named Emily Gordon. Emily Gordon is an American writer, producer, and podcaster known for her 2017 comedy, The Big Sick. She developed a condition called adult onset stills disease just months into her courtship of actor Kumail Najani. Her condition deteriorated quickly, leaving Emily in a medically induced coma at one point. For those not uh, familiar with Stills' disease, this condition can severely damage or destroy the joints, cause inflammation around the heart, create excess fluid in the lungs, and not the least, lead to another rare condition called macrophage activation syndrome. Stills' disease is considered an autoimmune arthritis, but certainly it's it's very, very serious. So don't let the word arthritis fool you into thinking that it's not a serious condition. Um, in fact, arthritis in itself, in all of its forms, quite serious. For Emily, adult onset Stills' disease was not her last experience with a rare condition. Just over a decade after her experience with Stills' disease, and having never fully recovered from her initial onset, she developed a condition known as Common Variable Immunodeficiency, or CVID, or CVID. CVID causes the body to produce less infection-fighting proteins, which can lead to chronic infections of the ears, nose, throat, and respiratory system. Emily spent 15 years living with constant worries about her health because of these life-threatening conditions. When the pandemic hit in 2020, she and her partner, their lives basically shut down. Her partner said in a People Magazine interview, because I would overhear people downplaying it, COVID, and saying it really only affects old people and the immunocompromised, and that's a lot of people, including Emily. A lot of people are affected by being immunocompromised, whether that's because of conditions like CVID or because of transplant surgeries and being on immunosuppressants. Of course, cancer is one that we often associate with immunodepression, but it can also affect people who are on immune system suppressants because of autoimmune encephalitis or other autoimmune conditions. Uh, and autoimmune arthritis is another condition that might require immune system modulating conditions. Since the isolation, Emily has said that the only safe place for her is inside their home, but that's not the kind of life she wants to live. She talks more about her life as an immunocompromised person and finding ways to make her life safer in her podcast. Uh, we'll drop a link to the short-lived 2020 podcast, Staying In with Emily and Kumali, in the show notes. Hear me out on this one. I've recently been thinking about Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the guy really missed his calling. Instead of terrorizing teens in their dreams, he should have been a teacher. I know, I know, suspend disbelief. Just hang out with me here for a second. What kid would forget the mnemonic for counting? One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. I mean, I think the guy was just really passionate about religious education and time management, among other things. Like, five, six, grab a crucifix. Seven, eight, stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again. I mean, in my opinion, that's just sage advice for university students, if you ask me. 
And now for something completely different. Talking about rare conditions can be tough because often the stories include painful diagnostic processes, misdiagnoses, and other upsetting topics. But a great distraction from the difficult realities of rare disease is often films, television, and books. So let's take a very quick trip through some real made-up diseases from film, television, books, and history. Lycanthropy is the first one. Werewolves or lichens feature in many movies, TV shows, and books. Even the first nightmare I had as a kid involved werewolves. Don't ask. Anyhow, the species name lichen, such as those found in the movies Underworld and in the video game Resident Evil 8, The Village, come from the word lycanthropy, the term that is used for those who transform into werewolves. But the deeper root of the word comes from Greek stories of children who were raised by wolves. This is an actual thing. (laughs) In fact, there's a YouTube video on this, uh, which I would highly recommend if I could remember it. But you can definitely find it if you Google Greek stories of kids raised by wolves. Uh, The Greek word for wolf was lupus. And yes, if you think of the autoimmune disease lupus, you would be correct. The root of that word is wolf. There's a very interesting BMJ blog about the word lupus, and we'll link that in the show notes. On a side note, there's another word, cynocephaly, which is basically dog-headed or a dog-headed person. It's mentioned in many cultures from the ancient Greeks to more recent cultures. When a word ends with cephaly, it usually pertains to the head. So whether you're Team Jacob from the Twilight series or Team Lucian from Underworld, and I am very much Team Michael Sheen from Underworld, just saying. Werewolves have been in everything. They've been cool and sexy to downright dog-like. Some of my favorite werewolf-related guilty pleasures are the teen young adult Netflix shows Shadowhunters and the Lupicalia from The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. I very much enjoyed both of those shows, but don't tell anybody. This next one gets a little bit weird because it is vampirism, and vampirism has an actual medical definition. I'm not going to read the medical definition because it leads into a slightly different territory than we want to go into here, but staying in the medical realm of fantasy, it's believed that real vampirism or the desire to drink human blood actually came from a real medical condition called porphyria. Now, there are different types of porphyrias, but in this case, it's a porphyria that causes a lack of hemi or the protein in red blood cells needed to carry oxygen. It's speculated that the most infamous, quote-unquote, vampire of all time, real vampire, Elizabeth Bathory, may have had this medical condition, which led her to crave blood. Strange but true. Now, of course, there's no way to confirm that because Elizabeth Bathory died in the early, very early 16th century, I believe. So it would be difficult to confirm that now. But there have also been stories throughout time about people who have craved blood because it is a great source of iron. Uh, Stories about vampirism, of course, predate Elizabeth Bathory and her reign of terror in the 16th century. I won't go into an extensive history of vampirism because obviously it's both fictional and alleged. There are alleged cases of vampirism. But I can recommend the book The Vampire Encyclopedia by Matthew Bunsen. I don't ask why I can recommend this, but I've had multiple copies of this book, and it is really fascinating, both with historical context and also across films, television, books, music. It pretty much covers everything. It's, it's a really good book, and you can find it on Amazon. The last disease of fictional origin, I suppose, <laughs> that we'll talk about is zombification. 
This is the one that freaks me out the most. I have a deep fear and simultaneous fascination with the zombies. They have a checkered history between accounts of reanimated people raised from the dead by voodoo uh, to do their master or mistress's bidding or folks who are exposed to the TNG viruses of Resident Evil. Uh, Most fun but disturbing fact about zombies is that modern zombie fiction is actually rooted in scientific fact. At least that's how, you know, infection spread. That's the factual part of the zombie lore. Good examples of this are The Last of Us with fungus as a carrier for infection, viral transmission a la Resident Evil where the T and G virus were able to alter human DNA, and finally encephalitis causing conditions because these can alter human behavior and perception. The last one is kind of a leap, but it is all explained actually in an article by the Cleveland Clinic which we'll link to. It's really fascinating. But those are just three examples of conditions that, well, I guess you could say are pretty rare, but also don't necessarily exist in real life. However, they do either have roots in historical stories or even in real conditions that have perhaps been exaggerated to create a a myth or a history around it. But each of the three examples are extremely interesting and fascinating. And of course, if you're interested in other forms of media that involves lichens, zombies, and vampires, let me know because those are some of my favorite types of movies. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle Ferrer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us at hashtag Signalize for Rare on social media platforms.